Uh, but you can open up to the book of Matthew at the beginning, and then we'll, uh, we'll make our way throughout a handful of different scriptures this morning. We're in the middle of a series, uh, sort of a series. Uh, we're really in the middle of a series within a series uh, where we are looking at the idea of exile in the Bible. And before you check out and think, well, okay, that sounds extremely boring, I can assure you it is very relevant for us in our uh, life. But when we talk about exile, we're not talking about Siberia-style exile like, oh gosh, that guy got in trouble, he's gone, we'll never hear from that guy again. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about exile. What we're talking about is this idea of loss and longing, this idea that we've lost something and that we ourselves are longing for something, uh, mere, uh, something more. I'm curious, show of hands out there, how many of you guys would say that in your house, you don't have to say you personally, and you don't have to look at anyone sitting next to you, but anyone would say you have a problem with losing things in your house. Like, show of hands. Good. I'm glad I am not the only one. Uh, it is a real problem in our house. And I'll tell you, it's, it wasn't a problem for me until I got married. So you can use your deductive reasoning to figure that one out. Um, not saying anything more than that. But it's a real problem for us now. Uh, it's, it's a huge problem. Then you add the kids on top of that, and uh, I'm surprised that I can find anything whenever I get ready to leave in the morning. Uh, fortunately, I'm generally pretty good at finding things. It's kind of a spiritual gift that God has given me, because if I didn't have that gift, I'm not sure I would be here because our keys would have been lost years ago, and we never would have found them. Um, but I, if I could, this is one of those things that I think when you, you, know, when you, when you get to heaven one of these days, you'll ask God, I... I'd, I'd like to know how many years of my life I would get back if I just got back the time I spent looking for things. Uh, if I just got back all that time that I spent digging in a closet, looking underneath stuff that's just everywhere, I would love to know how much of my life I could get, I could get back, uh, how much has been wasted looking for things. It's in the top ten things I hate whenever I come to a situation where I need something, and I know that I have paid good money for it, but I don't have it. That is super frustrating for me. When I know I own the thing that I need the most, but I cannot find it. And it's a real problem, uh, real problem for us. That is one way that we are talking about uh, loss here. That we are talking about losing things in that we have lost something. Right? We talked about this in the, the, the first week as we uh, kind of took a look at exile. And we talked about being exiled from the garden. We lost our place of, uh, that we called home. We lost a relationship with God. We lost something in the fall. So we have lost something. But there's another way that we talk about uh, loss. And that's not that, that we have lost something, but that we ourselves have been lost. That we ourselves are uh, in a place where we can't figure out exactly where we are. I thank God for GPS on my phone, because if I did not have that, the stories I would be able to stand up here and tell about being lost would be, uh, they'd be all over the place. I rely on that so much. We talked about this last week whenever we talked about the idea of us being lost and this constant longing that we have for something. This is universal across all of humanity. We feel that we have lost something and that we ourselves feel a bit lost in this world, as though it's not our home, as though it's not, it's not everything we think that it's, it's supposed to be. And we, 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 long, we have these questions where we look around at the world and we say, is this it? Is this all that there is? Is this all that we have? Both of these elements of loss and lost, both of them 
uh, in the sense that we have lost something and we ourselves are lost, are at play when we talk about exile in the Bible. And what we're going to see today in the, in the person of Jesus is that he comes to, to, to rectify, to fix both of those situations for us. But before he does that, he will identify with both of those things. He himself will be able to, to, to know that, that sense. So last week we saw where Jesus on Palm Sunday fulfills the prophecy of a king that would return and put an end to exile, uh, and he will. But before we get to that part, uh, what we need to see is a little bit more about this idea of exile and how it relates to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who, is in every, has, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without Sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times in time of need. Now this verse gets quoted a lot to talk about how Jesus was tempted and had to deal with a lot of the same things that we did. And if we look at it in a certain way and we qualify it in a certain way and we put the, the, the right qualifiers on it, this would be true. This would be true. But the thing is, we can say that Jesus is not totally tempted in all the exact same ways that we are. Jesus is not tempted to go 120 miles an hour in a car that he stole because they didn't have cars, right? So we can't say that he's not been tempted, that he's been tempted in all the same ways. But what this means is generally he has experienced life in the same way that we have. That there was nothing that came before him that was off limits that said, he's God, he doesn't get tempted in this way. It doesn't come before him and say, he's different than us altogether, and so the temptation is different for him. The point that is being made here in the book of Hebrews is that he went through this world with all the same, the same stuff around him that we go through the world today. He's talking about Jesus generally, that he knows what we are dealing with. That in and of itself may be enough for you this morning to be able to hang on to. That may be, if you hear nothing else in this message this morning, that idea that he has experienced this world and all that it has to throw at us every bit as much as you have. I think this verse is talking about the way Jesus was in the world. That he did not come, set up shop, and start, uh, start kind of taking names, kick and tail. That's, he could have done that. But that's not what he did. Instead, he came and he took on all of our infirmities, all of our sickness, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all the mess that we have to deal with. He took on all of that. He took on all of our physical limitations. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he took on our physical limitations. He became a servant. He took on flesh. He would even take on our limitations to the point that he too would die. He became like us in this way. He made his way through this world with all the things that limit us. He chose to be limited too. But that's not the only way he became like us. He became like us in that though he was without sin, he too became an exile. He too would experience loss 
he too would be able to understand this universal feeling in humanity of being lost. He left the Father's side in, uh, in heaven to come to us. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own. He left heaven, and he was rejected when he came. He was an exile. He was an exile when he came to the people that he was here to save. He left home only to come to this world to be scorned and to be rejected by men. Jesus was an exile from the time he came. I want you to walk with me through a few things, a few scenes in Jesus' life that I think we totally miss until we understand this idea of exile. So before we get to Easter, I want to go back to Christmas real quick. I want to talk about the incarnation and how that teaches us about Easter. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So here we are talking about Christmas. Why would I bring up Christmas on Easter? Because from the first day of his life, from the first moment that he comes, even before he is born, Jesus is already an exile here in this world. In two ways. Mary and Joseph could not have them in their home the way a birth should have gone. They cannot have him in Nazareth. They have to be in Bethlehem. So they have to travel to Bethlehem. So they're already not at home. And then when they get to Bethlehem, there's no room for him in the inn. So they have to go find a temporary home. They have to set up shop for Jesus to be born in a stable. Double exile there. He's not home in Nazareth, and then even when he gets to Bethlehem, he cannot find a home to be born in. He has to be born in a stable from the day of his birth. And then things go from bad to worse. You fast forward just a couple of years, they're still in Bethlehem. Before they can return to Nazareth, Things get dicey. The wise men go to visit Herod, looking for this new king. Tips off Herod that this is happening, and then this is what we see happens after the wise men visit Herod. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Ra Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, I think there's a lot lost on us as modern readers. And for those of us that don't know uh, our Bibles well, I have never put these two things together until I started looking at this idea of exile. We think this is some sort of Bible verse that is quoted here about Rachel that he's quoting that kind of vaguely refers to Jesus. 
But remember, Matthew is writing specifically to a Jewish audience. Specifically to a Jewish audience that feels it is still, it is still in exile under Roman rule. Even though they're back in Jerusalem, they're still in exile. And Matthew knows exactly what he is doing. He makes a reference to this verse because this verse draws us to a fuller understanding of what is happening when Jesus is born. Matthew is talking here about exile. The quotation in verse 18 is actually from the book of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31. The weeping that is being heard, the loud lamentations that is being quoted about, is whenever the nation of Israel was carted off into exile. As the Babylonians took them, and as they were gone, Rachel, which is a metaphor for all the mothers of Israel, they are weeping because their children are no more. Why? Because they have died from the, the deportation and the exile that has happened. They have died or they have been taken away from Jerusalem. They are no longer home. This is what Matthew quotes Whenever he's talking about, he could, he could have quoted something from Exodus, right? This is a familiar scene from Exodus. Whenever whenever the, the Pharaoh orders for all the children to be killed, like it's it's a he could have quoted from there, but he quotes from Jeremiah because Jeremiah is a prophet. Uh, or whenever uh, the Jesus shows back up and he has to leave and he has to go away, whenever this happens, Matthew says this is just like whenever people were taken into exile. This is just like whenever your forefathers 500 years ago were taken into exile. In tying this verse to Jesus from his birth, Matthew is tying the theme of exile to Jesus in his life. He's acknowledging that even in the first century, the Jewish people are still in exile. But here's the thing. If you read the rest of Jeremiah 31, so if you open it up and you just scan your eyes down through the rest of Jeremiah chapter 31, here's what you see. You see this quotation of, 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 of lament for what has happened to the children of Israel. But then when you read the rest of Jeremiah 31, it's all about the end of exile. And about how they will return to home. And about home will be, how home will be theirs again. And then do you know how chapter 31 ends? It ends with Jeremiah talking about the establishment of a new covenant. And that as that new covenant is established, that is how they will be brought out of exile. And what we're going to see here in just a few minutes is that's how Jesus ends his life. By establishing that new covenant. Matthew's talking about exile. You fast forward a little bit, just, just a little bit more, and what you'll see is that, 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 that Jesus is, is, what this is referring to is when Jesus had to leave. So Herod had done this, but, but why did he do this? Because Jesus, or, or he had done this because he was looking to kill Jesus. So what happened to Jesus as a result of this? He had to go where? To Egypt. He had to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. This is just a couple of verses before that. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to f fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus, before he ever sets foot in the town that would, that would mark him and his name as his earthly home, Nazareth, is now exiled again for a huge chunk of his childhood. This is the life Jesus lived. Born in exile, and then from exile, exiled even further all the way to Egypt. This was the life Jesus lived all throughout his ministry. He knew what it meant to be without a home. You fast forward to a scene from his ministry. Somebody is coming up and they are saying, Jesus, I would love to follow you. And this is what Jesus says back to him in Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So as Jesus begins his ministry, he starts traveling from place to place, but he had no place to call home. He had no place that was his place where he said, this is where I belong. He was in ministry, but while he was in ministry, he was still in exile. The foxes might have a home, the birds might have a home, but the God that created them all, he has no home. There's so much more I could reference here. There's so much more that I could talk about. But the point I want to drive drive home here is that Jesus can identify with the weight and the power and the temptation of sin. He knows all of that. But it's far greater than that when we read that verse in Hebrews. Jesus can identify with us in our constant nagging feeling that things are not right in this world. That things are not right that things are not how they should be. And that we should not be at ease with what is happening around us. When we look around at this world and we see injustice, Jesus says, I see it too. When our heart breaks because of the effects of sin on this world, through abuse, through sin, through suffering, through death, Jesus' heart breaks too. In John chapter 11, verse 32 He's coming up to see, uh, to, to, to see uh, Mary whenever her brother Lazarus had just died. And we have this account. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Why does Jesus weep right there? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why doesn't he just dismiss Mary and say, you know what? It's fine. It's it's fine. I was a little late, but it's fine. I got it all under control. No need to fret. No need to worry. I've got it under control. Why does he weep? Why is his soul greatly troubled when he knows he's about to reverse what has gone wrong here? It's because he knows that death is not how it's supposed to be. It's because he knows as he he sees uh, Mary lament, as he sees her weep, he knows the feeling that this is not right. This is not what it should be. He knows that he should be laughing with Lazarus, not standing outside of his tomb with Mary. Jesus doesn't just understand us in our temptations. He doesn't just sympathize with us in our cravings, but even more so, I believe, in our longings. 
He understands the depth of the longing that we feel, perhaps even in a greater way than we ever could. Before the world numbs us through its entertainment, through its politics, through its cynicism, we have lost this sense of longing in so many ways. But Jesus is acutely aware of the home that he has lost. He knows what the world should be like, and yet it is not that place. And even despite all the distractions that we are thrown, we still have this longing for how things should be, how they're supposed to be, for the home that we have lost, for the memory of a place where we have never even been. Jesus knows all of that. He can sympathize with you in that. He knows what it's like to wake up and feel like, man, I just don't, I don't belong here. This doesn't feel right to me. When you stand at a graveside, he knows that feeling. When you stand at a hospital bedside, he knows that feeling. When you stand betrayed or forgotten by a friend, he knows that feeling. When you lay your head down at night and know something is not quite right, he knows that feeling. When you look around and say, there must be more to this, he knows that feeling. He knows it because he too is an exile, born that way, raised that way, lived that way. He's an exile just like us. We have been exiled from the garden. He enters into our humanity, into that exile. I want to take just a few more minutes here on Easter to talk about two final scenes at the end of Jesus' life that will help frame for us the events of the Easter weekend. First, I want to read something from John's Gospel, and then we'll be in Mark. That's where we'll be. So John 18.1. This is immediately following the Last Supper. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. This is Thursday evening, like I said, right after the Last Supper. What is it that, that John is doing here? He's setting the stage for what's about to happen in the rest of his book. And what had he just done at that Last Supper? He had just inaugurated that new covenant that Jeremiah 31 had talked about. He had just established it. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room. They're now making their way outside to this place for some further teaching. Matthew and Mark identify the place as, as Gethsemane, but John only calls it a garden. He does this because where Matthew... Matthew is going back to prophets like Jeremiah to, to, to make the point of what is happening. But John is going even further back in the Old Testament to draw our minds to something else. He's going all the way back to the beginning. John is not drawing our minds to a, a, a specific place like Matthew and Mark are with, with Gethsemane. John is drawing us to a place that is symbolic. 
You see, what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is in many ways reminiscent of what we saw a few weeks ago in the Garden of Eden. It is the story of two gardens. What the book of Romans calls the story of two Adams with two very different results. I'm going to read a big chunk of Scripture here from that account in the garden. I just want to read it, and then we'll have some commentary about it. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And again, he went, he went, went, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how, what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out, against, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So what we see happen here parallels the garden in so many ways. I won't even be able to pull them all out this morning. But at each step, what we see is that Jesus takes a different route than Adam had. And in doing so, he will begin the process of reversing the exile that came as a result of Adam's fall. In the garden of Gethsemane, both, both Adam and Jesus were faced with a choice. This much we can see. Adam listens to the voice of his wife and he eats of the fruit. In Gethsemane, Jesus listens to the voice of God and even when he longs for the moment to pass and to not have to uh, endure that, he does not shrink back. In Eden, Adam runs from God and hides as a result of his sin. In Gethsemane, Jesus hides from no one. When he sees his betrayer coming, he says, rise, and he moves toward them. He is not hiding. He is moving towards his eventual death. Even as the soldiers approach, even as the, the soldiers he sees that, n- that he knows will mean his death, he does not run. In Eden, Satan was there inhabiting a serpent. In Gethsemane, Satan was there inhabiting the person of Judas. In Eden, the temptation of Satan was to eat the fruit to be like God. In Gethsemane, it was God that had come to be like man. The two contrasts sit against one another. In Eden, a tree was the means to death for Adam and Eve and for all of us. 
And it would be just outside of the Garden of Gethsemane that a tree would be the place of death. Not for me and for you, but for Jesus. Listen to how Paul explains the contrast of the two, of Adam and Jesus in the two gardens. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You skip down a couple of verses. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass, trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death would reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in Adam's sin in Eden, sin was entered into the world and we all became sinners through that. But it is in the one man's faithfulness in the garden, in Jesus Christ, that we all become righteous through him. Finally, we see one more place that Jesus would be identified as an exile, an outcast, a person to be dismissed and forgotten. The book of Hebrews gives us commentary on how sacrifices would be carried out, and then he applies that to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So in Jesus' first days, in the Christmas story, twice in exile, born into exile, On Jesus' last day, outside the camp, outside the city gate, just like the sacrifices that were made in the temple and then cast outside the, the gate, Jesus dies in exile. He is born in exile. He lives in exile. He dies in exile. From beginning to end, Jesus identifies with us. This morning, if you are here and you are considering what it means to follow Jesus, exile is a part of that. Part of the human condition for us is that we are in exile, that we long for something that we have lost. Exile is the life Jesus lived and it is the death he died. And that's what makes Easter so special for Christians. Because what Easter means is that exile is not the end of the story. He may have been born in exile, he may have died in exile, but the story doesn't stop with his death. Easter means that exile is not our permanent place outside the camp, outside of fellowship with God, in constant longing, never satisfied, never, never happy, always longing for something else. That does not have to be our story forever. Easter teaches us that just while we may never escape that 
that nagging feeling and that lack of satisfaction here on earth, that someday there is a greater truth, a greater reality, that there is an end to exile. Satisfaction is possible. And satisfaction is possible because God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. 1 John chapter 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, that is a satisfactory payment for our sins. What that means there is, you, you, you could read this and you could say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to end exile for us. Jesus was buried, the ultimate exile for the God of the universe, but the exile did not last forever. Three days later, He rose again and the exile was over. And in Him, that can be true for us too. This side of heaven, we will not fully know what it means to be back home. But satisfaction will only be found in Him because the wrath of God is satisfied in Him. So rejoice on this Easter Sunday. Rejoice because in the injustice that you see around you, it is not forever. Rejoice and that longing that you feel because you know it can be quenched. Rejoice because that home that you've always felt but you've never known, it's not some dream. It's real. And it will be our home someday. And it will be, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the place where all sad things come untrue. And that's why we sing. And that's why we worship. We sing for the joy of the end of exile and we worship the one who brought an end to the exile. Who is now seated with the Father at home. And I hope you'll come back next week because next week we're going to take a look at what home really means. Man, it's a great culmination to this story. So happy Easter. He is risen, and because He is risen, we celebrate with joy because we know the story does not end. In our darkest, worst moments, in our deepest longings, that is not all that there is. There is more, and He is risen. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we do rejoice. We rejoice together shoulder to shoulder, in these seats together to sing these songs. Not because this is just what we do, not because it's Easter and you're just supposed to show up at church. No, we rejoice because we so desperately know what we have lost. We, we know that we are lost, wandering looking for home. May we find that rest and may we find our home in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.